Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Valerie Bahaja, an actor who broke out as part of the Toronto New Wave, starring alongside Don McKellar in Bruce McDonald's Roadkill and Highway 61, and went on to make movies herself, writing and directing The Anniversary and It's Hard to Be Human, among others. Her latest, Carmen, stars Natasha McElhone as a woman who, having spent her adult life tending to her brother, finds herself taking over his position as the priest in their small Mediterranean village when he dies. It's been on the festival circuit most of this year, and now it's playing in theaters across Canada and set to open in New York and Los Angeles September 23rd. It's a delicate little character story about faith, identity, and purpose, and McElhone is quietly great in the lead. You should see it. Valerie picked Ida, the Oscar-winning 2013 drama from writer-director Pavel Papakowski that's also about faith, identity, and purpose. It's about a young novitiate in early 1960s Poland whose path to her vows is disrupted when she discovers her parents were Jews killed towards the end of World War II. Since spinning by this revelation, Ida embarks on a journey of discovery in more ways than one and winds up confronting her own past as well as her country's. Tonally, Ida is a very different work from Carmen, though, as you're about to hear, the two films have a lot to talk about. This is someone else's movie. I went with Ida because, um, well, the the God relationship. The mm-hmm. I I just it's just such an, a gorgeous film. It's stunning, and each shot is a photograph. and And if I could make a film like that, I'm I'm ready to die. Like it's just like <laughs> it's it's so exquisite and. And and the writing, you know, it's just the this just minimal dialogue and the bold choices of the minimal dialogue, you know, just you know, if you don't get it, too bad, watch it again. Or bits where um they don't show the accident or they don't show, you know, they see you you see her jump out the window and and that's it, and it's left with that and and understanding and respecting that the audience is smart enough to have a visceral sensation of what is going on here. Um, and the choice that this young Ida makes at the end to go back to the church. Um, it's huge. It, it's just, I just think it's an all round perfect film. Yeah. yeah. I should back up and and just talk about how, in awe I am of Pavel Pavlikowski's ability to do what he does as a storyteller right. because mm-hmm. none of his films should work. Uh, just on a strictly formal basis, they should fall apart. They should drift away um, yeah. because they're so they're so involved. They're so concerned with the sublime and the things that we don't see and the things that are missing from the exposition, right? I mean, all of those movies, something like um, The Woman in the Fifth, which is this dream state of a movie with Ethan Hawke and, and Kristen Scott Thomas um, trying to connect to each other in 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 Paris, sort of, but possibly not. Uh, they're the kind of movies that usually drive me out of the theater in, a, in like frustration. I'll, I mean, I watch the whole thing, but afterwards it's just like, it wasn't about anything. And all of his movies are about the thing that I want them to be about, which is how impossible it is to live a good life or achieve a connection or they're so simple that um, something my first experience of him was um, I missed last resort the first time around. I didn't see it until later, but I saw my summer of love. Um, the film he made with um, Emily Blunt and Natalie press. I think it was in 2004 
uh, it's a sort of a queer coming of age film, but it's also about the rise of fundamentalism and intolerance in England in a way that just didn't even register at the time. It just felt like one character played by Patty Considine who was being particularly obnoxious. And then going back a couple of years later, it's like, oh no, it's a cultural thing. It's, he's just the embodiment of it and it's happening all around them. That's his way in. And with, with Ida, he's dealing with, you know, decades of, of cultural oppression and persecution and how it culminates in World War II, but that's not the, it's neither the beginning nor the end of it. And we're just swimming in that world along with this poor woman uh, who still has agency and, and ability and manages to live a good life yeah. uh, on her own terms, despite all of this death that surrounds her and, and anger and hate and, and oppression. And again, I look back at it, it's the sliver of a film. It's only 82 minutes long. It's just, it's just incidences. It's tiny little vignettes and it builds to something so powerful. Yeah. Um, and he does that. He always does that. And it's, you know, it's, I would actually be angry at it if I was a filmmaker because so few people can, can stick that landing every time. Yeah. And also, um, <laughs> I'm afraid to say all this, but then, you know, when you make no, films, please. you've got um, producers and sales agents who come in and recut. Sure. And, and, and so you're not, they're afraid. They would be af terrified of having a film like this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just like nobody knows what happened. Nobody knows that they, they had a car accident because she was drunk. So you have to redo things just for, or, you know, uh, yeah. so the fact that he's allowed to and and goes for it fearlessly is fantastic. And then, of course, the big thing that I think everyone talks about is the the uh, aspect ratio of um, the one point three seven that he, mm -hmm. he shoots with, and it's like wow, wow. I, I forgot too, um, Norm, because I shot Carmen back in two nineteen, but I looked. You know, you 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 reference uh, all sorts of films sure. so that you can talk to your cinematographer and art department and so forth, you know, um, and Ida was one of them. I was like, uh, I, how she's so very small in the frame uh, and then builds as she escapes or not escapes, leaves the nunnery, the convent. Um, she gets bigger and bigger and then she gets small again, but I didn't risk it or wasn't allowed to risk it, let's say, um, <laughs> to be, you know, her, she's very, very, very tiny in the frame. Uh, and then there's all that space above, which makes so much sense if you know the church. Um, you know, yeah. that, that uh, you are small and all that. And it is all those, that's why those churches were built as they were built, right? So um, he's brilliant. Yeah. It's funny, too. It struck me this time through as a contrast to what Lars von Trier does in something like Breaking the Waves, where... Oh, my God, yeah. They're, they're about the same thing, I think, ultimately, but so radically different. Uh, von Trier's entire modus operandi is to force suffering on his characters to see how long it takes them to break and whether one person's resistance is you know, saintly or just madness. And Pavlikovsky is... He's not interested in that, I don't think. I don't think he's about suffering in the same way, but he's about purification 
in the kind of the same way Breaking the Waves is. Um, it's a it's a big leap. And, and please, if you disagree, by all means, say so. No, but- I, I think you're right. It's not about suffering. Like I didn't feel like, especially Ida, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get the sense that Ida is suffering at all. Mm-hmm. She's, She's leaving so it behind. At peace, She's so at peace. And that lovely actress, you know, does a great job of that. It's her aunt who is suffering this internally. And, and it takes us a while to figure out why. Well, he doesn't give it to us till much later. And, and yes, of course, that grief that she's living with. Um, but no one's a vic- no one's acting like a victim, you know, which is beautiful. Yeah, there's um, there's a choice made early on, and it's it's obviously reflected from the writing, but it's about not playing into the expectations of guilt yeah. and suffering, right? They just yeah. refuse. They don't even consider it. I don't think. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, it takes a while before we eat a cracks a smile it's when she's in the car with her aunt right it's like wow okay there we go and then we don't see a a beam of sunlight till uh they're at the uh cemetery the jewish cemetery Mm -hmm. you know i was like wow this is amazing he's really thought this out um just uh you know it's poetry it's beautiful yeah and it, it opens up so many they're not even questions. They're just themes that float around. Um, but the, the nature of, of Ida, who, you know, who starts as Anna and wants to be a nun and, uh, or to take, take the habit. And she's, her parents are Jewish. Her family is Jewish. This is yeah. like, she's a, a survivor of something that again, is just, it's never articulated. It's just there. And I don't think I've seen it dealt with so Offhandedly, the 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 idea that someone who survived something so horrific would want to disappear into another faith or another religion. I mean, she's she must have been one or two when when the war ended. But you know, you you I knew my grandparents sort of growing up with stories from the old country, and then my parents who were born like in 1941 and 1943 in Canada were just raised with this constant tension and terror of the, because they had heard such vivid stories as children and it imprinted on them in a way that, you know, I as a, as a, the next generation couldn't understand or rationalize at all. Um, and she, her need to disappear and, and be something else while still pulled towards finding out what happened to her parents and needing to know where the bodies are and all of this stuff that just roils inside of her. And uh, yeah, as you say, it's the acting. It's uh, I'm going to butcher her name. I'm so sorry. Uh, Agata Czesbukowska, who just wears it behind yeah. her eyes somehow. It's in her frame. Yeah. Yeah. All but, these contradictions. Well, yeah. What I love about this story, too, is um, so she does give it a try, right? She, she Yeah. I think she, she genuinely wants it. She, for, she, for a while. she goes out and she puts on the dress after her aunt dies. She puts on the dress and smokes a cigarette and has sex, most likely for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it decides that's well, it's that moment where she says to that musician, and, and I'm glad he picked a musician. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know what? he invites her to go on tour with him and then they can walk on the beach. And then she says, what after that? And he says, we'll get a dog and a house and have kids. And and then what? 
And then what? Yeah. And I was like, wow, right? Right? Then what? And it's not as satisfying for her as to staying at the convent. Why? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's she's more satisfied. She has a choice there. She's at that fork and she chooses to go back to the convent because it's home. It's comfort. It's whatever. I don't know. It's it's spirituality that she's a spirituality that she feels she needs. Yeah. But she tried it. She got a taste of it, which I just think is um brilliant brilliant my take on the ending is that then what is she wants to know what his faith is she wants to know what he really believes will happen in the end and then i think that's the other thing too as a holocaust survivor or the child of people who were killed in the holocaust she is obsessed with the idea of being protected after death because she's been so close to it yes um and so and then what is that's the question, right? And that's the question the whole movie is asking because there is no possible answer that will satisfy anybody. Yeah. Does she want to be reunited with her parents in an afterlife where being Jews, they wouldn't be permitted since she's going Catholic? Would Does she hope that there's something else, that there's an, like, did, I, I, is she asking him to give her an alternate faith, another way to believe something after death is possible. I, I don't know, right? I don't have yeah. the answer to that, but I, I feel the yearning in that performance and her her just her need to have more concrete information, which is, you know, inherently a contradiction. She can never know. None of us can know. Yeah. It's about faith. It's about faith. It's about faith. And it doesn't matter what faith, what church in a way. It's just about faith. Um, what fills us up, what makes us feel whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's, he accomplished that as, and a lot of other things when he made that film. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, you know, it just reminded me as you were talking about, uh, I come from a very strict Catholic family and um, way back in the early nineties, I went to Malta on my own. Uh, I was working in Paris and then just thought I'm going to pop in. And back then, you know, it's like cowboy boots, blue jeans, <laughs> T-shirts and smoking a pack of camels a day um, kind of thing. And there was this aunt. I have many I have thousands of relatives, but this aunt, Josephine, who was a nun. And I don't know why I decided to go visit her, but visit her at the convent. Uh, of course, I probably reeked of cigarettes. I smelled like an ashtray. Um, but <laughs> I just assume I, everybody did at that time. <laughs> okay, good, thanks. Um, and I was pretty rough around the edges. And I didn't, I wasn't believing in anything at that point, right? I didn't believe in anything, like church especially. Hmm. And I was very disappointed in God. Um, but I went to the convent and... It's like all of a sudden, I felt like I was cleansed. It was a really overblown, <laughs> like this sensation of light that came over me when I walked in there. I was like, okay, but I was still like, what's going on here? And I met Josephine, by my aunt, and um, this tiny woman who had spent time in prison in in China for the, because of the cause or something, and. She did a lot of like missionary work and stuff like that. And she spoke like this and, and she, she won me over. 
I mean, not that I became a Catholic, but at the last bit of my visit with her, she said, let's go to the chapel. It's like, all right. And I sat <laughs> in the chapel with her and she said, let's pray for your journey home. And I'm like, I don't, I don't believe. And she said, that's okay. Would you mind just kneeling and I'll pray? I was like, sure. All right. And it was this non-judgmental, pure kindness from this woman. Uh, and I think of that when I think, uh, when I watched Ida, I was thinking of that experience I had at that uh, convent and I kind of get it, you know, I, I get the, the awe of it. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about the latest Shiny Things newsletter, my weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming thing. This week, I wrote about George Miller's fantastic, fantastical 3,000 Years of Longing and the Shout Factory 4K releases of Dog Soldiers and Cat People, because how do you pass up that pairing? Subscribe for the price of a latte at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. Did you miss me writing about stuff? So did I. Come check it out. I always wondered myself, I've never had any particular religious convictions. I'm like full on, you know, people are the only thing to have faith in because in the end, that's all we have. But I, and this has come up a couple of times uh, on the, on the podcast because we we deal with films with these themes. Um, I kind of envy people who have some sort of abiding faith because it's a way of seeing the world that I just can't access. Yeah. And I understand the impulse. I understand where religion came from and why people needed something to believe in, especially with, you know, lives being shorter, harder, more brutal, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, however far back you want to go when this stuff all came together. It must be comforting to think that there's someone watching out for you um, when someone else gets crushed by the rock that, you know, God saved you. So you must be good. And it just sort of plays into a sense of, of not status exactly, but standing um, that then takes over and becomes institutional. And, and then you see people abuse it almost immediately. Yeah. Um, but I, I admire the conviction and the commitment in people who have the, the, the articulation, not the articulation. How can I, how can I articulate this? Who have the commitment to, the actual tenets of, say, Christianity, you know, good works, helping people, charity. Um, so many people just claim that they're being good Christians while shutting down all the things that, yeah. you know, Christ supposedly stood for and, and spoke of. And now there's this schism even further uh, with, with the Catholic Church and, and the um, the institutional disregard for humanity and, and the, the, you know, the residential schools in Canada and all the other things that are happening. And, and Ida, of course, is dealing in some way with the fact that the church looked the other way during World War II and enabled all of these horrors uh, in Eastern Europe. And that's something that, you know, Pavlikovsky himself experienced. I think his, his paternal grandfather died in the Holocaust, which he didn't realize until much later in life. Um, and this film feels like the most personal thing other than the woman in the fifth, which is so clearly in conversation with his loss of his wife. Uh, his, his wife died in, I think it was 2006 after several months of, il- uh, 
something. He won't speak of it. He doesn't. He won't even say her name. Uh, I've interviewed him a couple of times, and he's he's very polite about it, but he just keeps saying he can't go there. And the woman in the fifth feels like his struggle to explain that in a film uh, about connection and loss. And then Ida feels like him trying to reconcile with his grandfather and his his identity as as a as a Polish national coming out of this country uh, with this hideous history. And he's just so good at not making it about himself that it feels like a genuinely Catholic work in the in the proper use of the word, right? Like he is creating an inquiry into his own feelings about this sort of thing and putting it on film for all of us, but he removes himself entirely by casting a young woman and, and just breaking away in that way. And it, I don't know how he feels about religion, but this feels like he's at peace with himself. Like this is the movie that tells me he's okay. Yeah. Wow. If that makes any sense, because that was that a makes long, total long road. sense. That makes total total sense. Yeah. I mean, how do you? Carmen is about um, religious representation, I guess you could say. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I, I obviously come from a very sort of Catholic family, and and for the longest time, I thought that anyone who wasn't Catholic was wrong. And then it wasn't when I was about sixteen. I read the Bible a little closely and, and realized, oh wait, God doesn't like everybody. Doesn't like homosexuals and stuff like that. And so I broke off and, and went completely the other way. Um and then but struggled with it, constantly struggled with it. And all of my pieces have Jesus in it somehow or another. And yeah. And so it's like I was I've always been looking for God, spirituality, but also ran away from it because of the church and didn't realize you could find spirituality with, um, without the church. I hate using the word spirituality, but I don't have another word. I just feel like it's been overused and it's all hooga-booga-ish now. But a, a quick story back in to, um, like 2014, I was um, really down and out about life in general. And um, I got a phone call out of the blue to give a workshop at a film Humber College Film School. And I was like, oh, okay. I went there, gave the workshop. It was a two-day thing. And then I got a phone call or an email from a student saying, would I be his mentor? And I was like, oh, okay. We went for, we, I said, we'll have to meet in my neighborhood. We were meeting for coffee. And I said, it was gorgeous autumn day. And I said, let's go for a walk. And I told him how I got into making films. And then he told me his story. He's a monk. Okay. So this monk. And uh, we, you know, when he was eight years old, he was pulled out from uh, Tibet and went to Nepal. And, and and he was always curious about cinema, but didn't really know anything about it, even though he was teaching the Buddhist way to Uma Thurman and Jeff Bridges and <laughs> Tracy Chapman. And, you know, as you do, but, sure. Yeah. As you do. Right. <laughs> and then we uh, sat on this on this park bench and it was glor- this glorious golden tree above us right and we were just talking and going in and out of you know buddhism and which i knew nothing about uh and i was like see how that light hits that swing that's stuff i want to capture that's perhaps and then i talked about story and 
And I said, you know, I wouldn't write about a Buddhist monk because I don't know anything about it unless I researched it. And he goes, ask me anything, ask me anything. I said, well, what's evil? He said, ask me something else. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so only to get to the, the, the end of the story is um, um, we were there for hours, by the way, hours until it was too cold. And I said, so how do you pray? Because I have to tell you that so many people said, pray, pray. I'm like, to whom? I don't know how to pray anymore. And I asked him and he said, we don't pray. We look at ourselves and think about how we want to change things. And that altered me in a major way as to how to go about my life. Oh, that's a pretty long story. Sorry about that. No, you can no. cut it off. Chut, chut, chut. But um, uh, yeah, so just just about spirituality and, and searching, and and I, I'm I've always been searching. Have used theater and cinema to um, help me find that way, my way through it. Yeah, yeah. I I think people who make movies that ask the questions rather than have the answers are generally the more interesting artists I find. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you never settle because you can't, you can never, if, if your purpose is to investigate and explore, there can't be an answer, right? Unless you're making a documentary and the quest is the most interesting thing because you never finished. You just yeah. keep coming up with your own perspective and you grow as an artist and you evolve, but you can still, sometimes you catch the you reconnect to the earlier work and you sort of see the person evolve over the like that that was that is my job still is to to track evolution and and you know keep take stock of, of people every every few years when they make a movie i get to check in with them and it's this wonderful emotional experience and when it's someone who's pursuing as you say all your films are pretty catholic you know, like there's there's a there's a thing that you're working at that that yeah. keeps coming back and i'm just I'm always fascinated with the choices you make. And Carmen is, it's a lighter tone, I think, certainly than the last couple of movies you've made. And I was just wondering if that signifies something about your perspective or just the way this story needed to be told. Um, how did you how did you land on, on this version of yeah. your movie? Um, I always try to find humor, I do. Um, because in, initially it is a pretty sad story in the sense of, you know, uh, this happened to my aunt and this tradition where mm -hmm. a man becomes a priest and his sister goes with him and is his maid till he dies, right? She doesn't get an education, a salary or a family of her own. And, and so once I heard about this tradition and finding out that my aunt had to go through this and now 97 years old, I saw her and, February and she said my life was terrible you know she's in tears and like, wow um so that was the crux of telling the story but how what if is is the big question like what if she she escaped it what if she made broad choices what if you know what if a woman took over the confessional group <laughs> So I, I like to have the the layers in it, you know. Yeah, it comes across as light, but there is a bit of a gravitas in there, um, you know, like the woman in the confessional booth who uh, wants to get rid of her husband without murder. Um, sure. 
divorce wasn't allowed in Malta till 10 years ago. Oh, I did not know that. So, you know, um, and abortion is still illegal. Dangerously so. And you might have read about a woman, uh, I think an American woman in Malta who needed to have an abortion because of health reasons and they wouldn't do it for her. And so she had to get flown to Spain and luckily she survived it. But um, it's, it's, that, you know, that um, that's the stuff that I want to bring forth. It comes without uh, being preachy. So I like to use humor to make people aware. I feel like it's an easier, it's an easier way to live life. It's an easier way to, to digest a story. Yeah, I can see that. And in the meantime, you're also... Yeah, you're allowing yourself a lighter story by kind of doing the service for your aunt and giving her a, a yeah. better outcome. Yeah, yeah. Which is really kind of yeah. sweet and sweet and small and something that floats along in the movie. Yeah. I mean, if we didn't know, right? If we if the audience wasn't aware, they would just be watching a fiction, and instead you're you're creating an alternate, a happier ending and an alternate reality. Yeah, and that the, and this also happens in so many places. When I came back. Uh, after I heard, came back from Malta, after I heard about that tradition, um, I spoke to friends and they said, oh, yeah, my aunt in Ireland did the same. And or someone else in India did the same. Or, and if it's not to take care of their brother, the priest, it's to stay back and take care of their aunt, grandparents. But always the daughter who stays right. back. Yeah. Pitched as generational duty when it's really just a, a way of not asking questions about what else would you rather do or what else could be possible. Exactly. Um, and I mean, the crux of this story is the female voice. And I use the confessional booth to um, help her find her voice. <laughs> it's a great device. And Natasha Malcolm, it just has such an amazing face for that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, it's just it's such a pleasure to watch her. I'm so glad you guys found each other. Yeah, it was an incredible collaboration. She, from our first FaceTime meeting, she understood the film, which is fantastic um, in, in so many levels. And then when she came to Malta and we just walked and talked for hours about beats in the film and so forth. And then she comes on set with this, her binder, with her script and all the colored chips as to all those nuances that you witnessed. Yeah. That's wonderful. I'm so glad it worked out. And uh, the final question on the podcast is always the same. I think we've sort of dealt with it already, but just in case, is there anything from Ida that you have adapted, adopted, borrowed, outright stolen for your own work? It it feels tonally very different, but the, I, I get the sense there's some stuff. Some stuff. Um, <laughs> like I said, the framing of like making... Carmen smaller in the beginning. Sure. Yeah. And even the confessional does sort of replicate a four by three feeling here and there, right? Because people are being boxed in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And because I'm not uh, a famous director, <laughs> I, I couldn't demand for more. I mean, it, it, it caused issues. The fact that I didn't want to see a lot of Carmen in the beginning, like I wanted to see her small. Um, producers weren't keen on that. So 
it was, I'm going to just be honest. It was, uh, it's tough to push for something like what he made, um, uh, like Eva, you know? Um, but so, yeah. And, but maybe for the next one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, something like it's hard to be human feels like a more aggressive spiritual inquiry. Yeah. Um, but this still gets the point across, you know, in a, you know, really elegant sort of way. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Um, you know, it's hard to be human. It's, it's me, was me really in the midst of searching for some reason. And then Carmen is me settling, I feel. Settling cinematically or for no, life or future? No, not cinematically, but um, with this, the, my relationship to the church. Yeah, neither of you is going anywhere, so you might as well I make guess it work that, for people. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's not the right word because I'm still questioning lots of things. And, um, maybe not settling, but accepting. Is that, could that be it? Just accepting that's the way it is and surrendering to the fact that it is what it is. And yeah. Yeah, I can see. Yeah. But at the same time, she's doing her best to make it a little bit better. Yeah. Which, yeah, that's something to take away, I think, when the movie's over. Just the sense that certainly it's in Pavlikovsky's work, but it's it seems to be Carmen's message, too. Like, the institution is inflexible and immortal, eternal anyway. Um, too big to fail or whatever, however you want to frame it. But one person is making that parish better for its people. And that's yeah. important. Yeah. It's the, it's the starfish thing, right? A man comes upon another man on a beach. He's throwing starfish back into the sea. They've been beached by a, a big tide, and the the beach is full of starfish. And the first man says to the other, "Why are you doing that? That it won't make any difference." And the man holding a starfish throws it back into the water and says, "It makes a difference to this one." Yeah. And that was the that's kind of what Carmen feels like to me. Like you, you're the. It's not the the result. It's the effort. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. This is what yeah. I do. No, you're right. Okay. <laughs> cool. My thanks to Valerie Bahajer, whose new film Carmen is in theaters across Canada right now and opening in the U.S. September 23rd. Thanks also to Laura Steen and Angie Power. They know what they did. You can follow Valerie on Twitter at Valerie Bahajer, all one word, and you can find Ida on Blu-ray and DVD from Music Box Films, and streaming for free on Canopy and Tubi in the U.S. and Canada. It's also available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year, the podcast is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 46 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. Buy your TIFF tickets. I'll see you next time.